This is the day the Lord has made. All right, you guys know that. That's great. Some of us here might not really be in the mood to rejoice, though. We might have said that. We might have gone through that motion. Some of us might have woken up on the wrong side of the bed with a scratchy throat or just in a bad mood. Have you ever woken up in a bad mood and you're just like, why? Well, and, and, and like, how do you turn that around, you know? Um, on the rare occasion that you do recognize it, like you hear your voice talking to someone and you're just like, oof. I sound like such a jerk right now. Yeah, right? Well, I'm glad everyone empathizes at least. I don't mean to ruin the joy of people here that are actually joyful. Um, some of you uh, are not joyful maybe because you're, you're struggling or someone close to you is really struggling physically or emotionally or spiritually. Maybe, maybe you have a need or maybe you're, you're just have your eyes open, like we said earlier, to need and brokenness around you. I, I don't want to downplay those. I, and I, I recognize that that, in most of the time, the way that we talk about joy, it doesn't seem like very fertile ground for being joyful. But here we are. At the end of Isaiah 61, we've been marching through this text for the last five weeks in this, this sermon series, A Planting of the Lord, kind of our, our formational chapter of the Bible as Oak Church. And we have a phrase like, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. This morning, no matter how, no matter how you're coming, no matter what cards you're bringing to the table, I invite you to share that sentiment. Uh, to feel that deeply, to overflow in hope and joy, and, and I hope uh, to show you um, reasons why our joy in Christ um, is, is a little stronger, a little more durable than our feelings. So I'm going to invite uh, Hachel to come up and, and read. We've been reading the whole chapter, and uh, I invite you to do that again, and, uh, and then we'll focus specifically on verses 10 and 11. So go for it. Thanks. So Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, an oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. Foreigner shall till your land and dress your vines, but you shall be called priests of the Lord. You shall be named ministers of our God. You shall enjoy the wealth of the nations. In their riches you shall glory, because their shame was double, 
and dishonor was proclaimed as their lot. Therefore, they shall possess a double portion, everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice, I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants shall be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are a people from whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the Lord brings forth, uh, as the earth brings forth its shoots, as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Thanks. So over the next four Sundays, as we mentioned, we participate in a season of anticipation for Christ's coming known as Advent. This lead-up, it trains us, it gives us a yearly rhythm attached to Christ's first coming, and then we prepare our hearts and our lives for his second coming, his return. When I was thinking about what we we're going to do for this season, I, as a young church, I, I really feel our need to kind of be connected to something wider and, and bigger than ourselves. So we'll draw from the Revised Common Lectionary, which is kind of a scripture plan for uh, many churches around the world. We're going to take from their psalms uh, this year. And, and we're going to uh, sing hymns and, and Advent songs, Christmas songs together, gather around an Advent wreath and light candles signifying the coming of the light of the world. For a church that strives, as I think we, we do, to experience and to offer hospitality, Advent is a great time to reorient our lives around making room for the God who came humbly and in turn making room for humble ones around us. Two Sundays from now, we'll be led by children in song and in story in, during our Oak Church uh, Kids Christmas pageant. And we're going to have kids from uh, Canoe and from Gospel Baptist as well. Three Sundays from now, we'll return to this theme of joy. So I don't have to say it all today. So don't get mad if I left something out. Tell me what I did leave out, though. In planning for Advent, though, I... I admit a little like liturgical anxiety that maybe I won't feel very joyful on Joy Sunday, the 14th, or what if I'm not really loving on Love Sunday, the 7th, or super peaceful on the 21st? You know, you can't really plan these things. But Scripture seems particularly insensitive to this sensitivity, right? The Apostle Paul urges his Philippian readers to rejoice again. I say rejoice. Re rejoice. Have joy as a command. You can almost feel exclamation points, even though biblical Greek does not have exclamation points. <laughs> this coming from someone who's going through it. He's imprisoned. He's beaten. Snake-bitten. This sort of joy is, a, is an odd sort of joy. It's what... Uh, Bart called the nevertheless kind of joy. That's full stop against the Philippians' anxiety. 
Likewise, uh, if you read from people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer that were imprisoned, they, they write from a, a prison cell, him, him from uh, Flossenburg, right prior to his execution, he tells people on the outside to be joyful. He says, joy abides with God. It comes down from God and embraces spirit, soul, and body. Where this joy has seized a person, there it spreads, there it carries one away, there it bursts open closed doors. These and countless other Christians throughout the ages have attested to a curious kind of joy amidst sorrow and suffering and distress. But, but why? How? Like, I can't be joyful when my throat hurts. <laughs> How can Paul command my emotion, rejoice? How can Bonhoeffer talk about joy seizing a person and opening doors when the only thing seizing him is Nazi guards and the only doors around him are chained shut? So in this text, we return to Israel's future as told by the prophet Isaiah. We've heard about her rescue by the hand of the Messiah, the Anointed One anointed to preach good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted. That Messiah shines the light into the darkness and frees the oppressed and captive, proclaims jubilee, release. The very one that would bring Israel home from her sin and exile. And sometimes that sin and exile was self-imposed. Sometimes it was other enforced and it was a distance from God. There would be hope and healing and hospitality, renewal, rebuilding, restoring, beauty for ashes, all these exchanges, joy instead of mourning, praise instead of despair, planted oaks for the, the display of God's splendor, this, this God, this justice-loving, putting-right Savior that vindicates His people. He takes our sin and He forgives it takes our sin and he forgives it. Makes her beautiful. This is our story. We look to a Savior who makes us new. We ask for our sins to be forgiven. Come to him as those who have lived in exile for too long. We, we rely on him. We trust. We, we have faith in the only faithful one that will bring us out of the desert of our sin and, and death and into new life, new creation that starts now. In our verses today, we, we, uh, w there's like this, this interesting shift. And, and maybe we don't get it by just having small chunks, but the speaker actually changes here. Initially, in, in the chapter we heard from the Messiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Since we've heard from God who declares... In the first person, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. And Matt did such a good job last week talking about that. Now the, speak, the speech shifts to Zion herself, God's people, the redeemed, answering her Redeemer in the only appropriate way. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. Her soul rejoices in her God. Not some vague, disembodied thing. When we talk about soul, we don't often know what we're talking about. But this is 
This is, the word is nefesh. This is throaty, gutsy, deep. This is a deep place. This is kind of like when we talk about soul music, <laughs> having soul. This is, this is something deep. That's where joy and delight reside for God's people. Then Zion does what we do often when we feel something really deeply. We, we start to feel overcome by emotion and we, we get kind of clumsy with our words. So we resort to poetry. We, we look for metaphor and song. And so today I want to look at two metaphors for this kind of joy. First a wedding and then a garden. A wedding and a garden. Each gives us kind of a different reason for joy and something that might help us shape our experience and expression for joy in our lives with God. So first the wedding. I think a wedding shows us that joy is personal. Pairing joy with a wedding might seem kind of obvious, right? Yes, most married people, uh, what the happiest day of their life is, and they'll answer you whether in reality or like obligation because their wife is there. They'll say, my wedding day, <laughs> the day my kids were born. I threw, I actually, and this is an aside, I, I actually threw up on the day my kid was born because I was so tired and my body was so shocked. But I, it was very happy and joyful. <laughs> So many little girls like start planning their wedding days like the second after the re the credits roll on Cinderella. Like that is wedding and joy. And if you spend any time around Duke, especially around the Div School, you, there's kind of this like March Madness esque thing happening around the entrance to the entrance to Duke Chapel, and it, it's like the days leading up to the first day of some of the busiest wedding months of the year, right? You see, if you want to have a Duke Chapel wedding, you have to camp out. Football tickets and weddings, you camp out. A year in advance to the first day of the month that you want to have your wedding. So it's first come and first serve, and there's probably some allowances if you, like, have a lot of money or, you know. But generally, first come, first serve. So at the end of April or... September, on the way to your 9 a.m. like div school preceptorial session, you'll see like this father of the bride-to-be emerge from a tent, right? In three-day-old clothes with like salt and pepper scruff, these like 55-year-old guys, trying to find a place to brush his teeth, all in the name of this like imminent joy for this, the, you know, his daughter's like dream neo-gothic wedding, right? We do crazy stuff for the joy of weddings. We love weddings. Two billion people with a B, billion people tuned into the royal wedding a couple years ago. We're slightly less interested in marriages though, right? <laughs> okay, more than slightly less. Weddings are really flashy and exciting and dramatic. They're full of potential. Marriages are often messy and ordinary and repetitive and sometimes even boring, like, because that's life. And that's not just life, that's life with someone else's life. Our, our scripture says, free is, clothe me with garments of salvation, arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness, 
as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Joy is personal. Joy, the joy of Isaiah's wedding imagery is an expectant type of joy. It's filled with all the butterflies of the big day, but it's also an equipment for a lifetime union with the beloved. Since Israel's return from exile, she now experiences life with God. She had been apart, now she's with God. And he is her source of joy. And that joy is lasting, it's eternal, it's durable, because God in his faithfulness will not leave her. She'll never again experience fear or doubt or despair or loneliness of life alone. Christ the bridegroom will not leave his bride, the church, in all her not splendor. He'll never leave his church. He'll never leave the church at the altar. He'll never leave or forsake her as he builds his kingdom up around her, with her, through her, for her sake and for the sake of the world that that church is supposed to share his love with. The message paraphrase uh, paraphrases this as he dressed me up in a suit of salvation he outfitted me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom puts on a tuxedo and a bride jewel with a jeweled tiara God's people are clothed with righteousness we wear our new identity in God like a robe like the robe given to the lost son in Luke 15 we're gilded with all the clothing and tools we might need, even for difficulty. That's what makes joy resilient. This is, these are the tools we might need, like the full armor of God in Philippians, a breastplate of righteousness, a helmet of salvation, etc. As God's people, we're given everything we need, not something that we own, but something we've been given. Joy is what God gives not what we work out for ourselves. Nothing we've done to make ourselves beautiful enough or prepared enough or good enough, you name it, whatever your anxiety is. Instead, the bridegroom has dressed up as a priest, the one who connects us to God. And we're dressed in jewels, made beautiful. There's more than a a small irony here, though, with, with that second part. Earlier in Isaiah's prophecy, Israel's unfaithfulness has led to judgment. And this, this was a judgment that would strip her of all her ornaments of fake joy. It would take away her fickle, fake beauty. Um, Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 2 says, In that day the Lord will snatch away their finery, bangles and headbands and crescent necklaces, the earrings and bracelets and veils and headdresses and anklets and sashes is very specific. The perfume bottles and charms, the signet rings and nose rings, the fine robes and capes and cloaks, the purses, the mirrors, the fine garments and tiaras and shawls. Now it will be returned. She'll be beautiful on the day she's reunited with her lover. And forever, that's her cause for joy. God's people get their joy from God's presence. That's how Bonhoeffer can talk about joy 
in the prison cell or Paul can urge people to rejoice as he's chained up. God's people get their joy from God's presence. Joy comes from union with God. How often do we get excited about what God has done for us and neglect the, to appreciate and to praise God for it? That's like the easy. This is like we're like kids on Christmas Day that like zone onto the present and forget to say thank you. Or spend the rest of the, did everyone do this? Like you spent the rest of Christmas Day like playing with your toys so much though. So like the 27th you were kind of done with it, you know? Yeah, that happened. Um, we make, you know, we're, we're like those kids on Christmas morning. But we also make, we make poor brides where we focus on all the wedding planning. And uh, I'm sure no none of the brides in this room have ever done this, but you've, probably know people that have done this where you get all stressed out about all the planning and then like when you get there and everything's been planned and been done and all the vendors have been paid you don't really know what to do with yourself or how to even enjoy yourself anymore yeah that's how we are with God as as brides to his bridegroom we there's there's kind of this this subtle but huge difference between this kind of fleeting and lasting joy that we get confused. Fleeting joy gets lost in the, the sparkle of the crown that God gives us, and lasting joy gets lost in Christ's gaze on us when he says we're righteous. Fleeting joy wonders why things aren't as charged now as they were when we first came to faith. Lasting joy continues to, to cherish and connect and Fight for intimacy years down the road. Fleeting joy crumbles when things change, circumstances. Lasting joy sustains. It's in sickness and in health and rich and poor and till death and actually beyond death. This joy is less of a feeling and more of an assurance, a mark of trust and fidelity. Joy is personal. Joy comes from union with God. And the second metaphor was that of a garden. And, and, and I think it shows us that joy grows. The image of a garden of growth and of flourishing. The wedding shows us that joy is persistent and faithful, built on God's faithfulness and alive in God's presence. It shows us that joy is personal. The garden shows us that joy grows. The scripture is for as the soil makes a sprout come up and the garden causes the seed to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before the nations. The last time in Isaiah that we got this kind of language about a shoot or a sprout, it was early on. And this is kind of like, um, like how, how Isaiah did with the first image. He returns to it. And so in Isaiah 4... The prophet casts a vision for hope. He anticipates a day when this kind of underground, this like subterranean working of God might finally kind of break through. And in, in Isaiah 4, he says, On the day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and glory of the survivors of Israel. Whoever is left in Zion and remains in Jeru Jerusalem will be called holy. 
everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. And then in Isaiah, se- uh, Isaiah 11, this is like a key Advent text that we're, we're used to. And I'll, I'll quote it at length. A shoot shall come up from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow up out of its roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Does that sound familiar? The Spirit of wisdom and understanding of Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. His, des- his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with his breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall lie with the lamb, the leopard shall lie with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the otter's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And this is the same hope that we sing about and it pops up in Christmas songs. Christmas songs are, are sometimes, uh, Christmas hymns, not Christmas songs, uh, are some of the most dense and rich scriptural songs. I think of, Lo, how a rose are blooming. When he says, Lo, how a rose are blooming from tender stem hath sprung of Jesse's lineage coming as men of old have sung. It came a floweret bright amid the cold of winter when half spent was the night. Our basis of joy is surprising. Seemingly sprouting up out of nowhere. But really rooted and established in what God has been doing and planning for quite a long time, right? This plant imagery shows us that joy isn't an affect. It's not just a feeling, but it's an effect. It's not something put on, but it's something brought out. Joy is, if we remember that list in Galatians, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit. And the thing with fruit, it, it, the, the roots are often there far before the fruits show up. Sometimes we don't feel it. We're not aware of it. Sometimes things look so contrary. God looks dormant or distant, and then a shoot breaks up. Uh, uh, Talk to Josh and Kendra after this about shoots coming out of nowhere and the expectation and faith that that takes that that's going to actually happen. Joy grows. Joy has roots long before it bears fruit. Joy is connected to our our faith. Its roots are in Christ, the one who first coming we celebrate in these coming Advent weeks. And our joy is also rooted in Christ, whose second Advent we, we wait for, we expect, we long for, we anticipate. Even now we hunger and thirst for that kind of righteousness. Eugene Peterson talks about this when he says, Joy is nurtured. Again, nurturing is a cultivation kind of term, a garden term. Joy is nurtured by anticipation. 
It builds on the past and it borrows from the future. This kind of joy's purpose, this personal joy, this growing joy, it, it begins in God and it, and it ends, uh, as the end of this chapter shows us, it ends with righteousness and praise springing up before the nations for the sake of others. <laughs> we don't hoard our joy. We don't um, keep it to ourselves. We, we're not just satisfied with it, but we, we kind of catch it midstream and we offer it on. We bear witness to it. We give it away. So I, I pray that this is a different way of thinking about joy for us, that, it, that it's not so fragile. It's much more durable. I pray that Oak Church be a place for this kind of joy. We, we never take ourselves too seriously, but uh, any kind of joy that we have is rooted in Christ, what he's done for us, who he is for us. That, that it be a place for this kind of surprising, sacrificial joy, solid and stalwart joy, even in the midst of heartache. I pray that we evidence the source and root of our joy that, that we remember who, who our bridegroom is and, and that be our source that it's not our own doing but God's gift to us, gift to the world through His Son through Jesus, through His Spirit working in our lives Will you guys pray with me? Uh, Father thank you so much um, that our ability to, to rejoice, to be joyful, doesn't depend on us, um, but on you, what you've done for us, what you've given us, um, more appropriately, who you've given us in Christ. We pray that we live uh, expectant lives, that, that we expect to be joyful in you, um, that we do it um, sometimes even when we're not apt to think that way. Um, because you're with us. You're near to us, nearer than we know. And that's an that's a occasion for joy. I pray that this joy might grow and flourish and strengthen. We pray that it might spring up in surprising places that, that we're always prepared to be surprised. We thank you for this coming season that we continue to um, learn what it means to, to make room for you, to expect you to, to prepare for your coming uh, in our lives, in our world, um, in your church, and through your church. Father, prepare our hearts in this, uh, these next moments of confession and conversation with you. Maybe, may we lay down um, places in our lives where, where we cannot be joyful um, because we're not allowing you to be present. If, if we've been far from you, um, beckon us back. Uh, we thank you for your grace and hearing our prayers, hearing our um, confessions forgiving our sins.